Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 more minutes with Gene Cavellos. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Nicholas Fife. And you've tuned into a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is our chance to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. In a never-ending, it is, it is a never-ending quest. Uh, uh, as our guest host today can attest, as every guest writer can attest, uh, uh, it, it just doesn't stop, and nor should it. Uh, as soon as you stop learning, you start dying, by golly. Uh, Nicholas Fife, my friend from Under Librum, from the Ed Greenwood group, uh, uh, writer and enthusiast of so many things. Dude, I am so deeply grateful to have you as my co-host for this episode, man. I really appreciate you making the time. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. We're going to have some fun. We're going to learn some stuff. We're going to do some creative froth. It's going to be awesome. Nick, just sit back for a second and, and let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Sure thing. Oh, you're a gentleman, sir. Thank you. Well, friends, you can hear the epic saga of our guest host's life, uh, and it is an epic saga. Trust me on this one. Uh, in her last 20 minutes with segment uh, from back in December 2014. Uh, but to recap, she is an astrophysicist who has worked for NASA. Uh, she was a senior editor at Bantam Doubleday Dell, where she started an award-winning line of books based on Babylon 5, and she is now a college professor who runs a full-service freelance editorial company on the side. Uh, she is, of course, also an author of several books, both fiction and non-fiction, including The Science of Star Wars and The Science of the X-Files, the latter of which was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. She has demonstrated the fierce determination characteristic of all successful writers persisting in her work on her novel Fatal Spiral, which, as of last year's interview, was topping out at 300,000 words. Uh, and she was also nominated for a 2015 World Fantasy Award for the primary creative passion in her life, the Odyssey Writing Workshops. Now, the winter workshop session just wrapped up and included workshops like the three-act structure in fantastic fiction, getting the big picture, the key to revising your novel, and point of view, the intersection of character and plot. Uh, and we're coming up on the 21st round of Odyssey Workshops. And this summer's workshops run from June 6th to July 15th, 2016, with the writer-in-residence being, this is so fabulous, Mary Robinette Kowal, who is not only a consummate writer, but also a consummate educator. Uh, and deadline for enrollment in the summer sessions is April 8th. Dear friends, please welcome back to the big comfy chair here in the Roundtable Virtual Studios, Gene Cavellos. Gene, we had such fun last year. I'm amazed it took us this long to get you back on, but I'm so glad we did. Thank you so much for coming back and, and being willing to share some thoughts and insights with us, ma'am. I have been longing for that creative froth. 
for over a year. <laughs> well, let's make sure it's not a year again before you can can roll around in that creative froth like a dog in summer grass. <laughs> That's the <laughs> Awesome. Uh, well, Gene, I want to get into our twenty minutes with, but I wanted to 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 touch base with you. Um, uh, the, the workshops, the Odyssey workshops for the summer look fabulous. And I wanted to give you uh, uh, just a moment to, to share with our listeners um, what Odyssey workshops is and, and what's coming up in the summer uh, that, that it just looks fabulous. I'm just going to shut up. Tell us about this stuff. Well, each summer we have our six-week uh, workshop, which is very intense, um, very focused on helping a small group of writers, 15 writers is all we can accept, to discover their strengths, discover their weaknesses, and really work toward how do I improve those weaknesses and how do I make the most of those strengths and really make them stand out. So we work like crazy. Um, We start at 9 a.m. every day and we spend at least four and a half hours in class, and then students go off and have like eight hours of work each day, writing, critiquing, doing exercises, doing readings, but most of all, bonding with each other, helping each other to work through their problems and become better writers. It's such a wonderful experience. I can't tell you, like when I started it, I thought, well, you know, I love working with writers. As an editor, that was my favorite part of the job, although it's only a small part of the job. Sure. Uh, And I thought, I want to do more of this, and I want to do it more personally and be able to spend more time with writers. So that's why I started Odyssey. And I thought it would just be, you know, a nice class. We'd have a nice time, and then we'd all go home. But it's really so much more than that. It's really about learning who you are as a writer, what you have to say, and gaining the ability to allow yourself to understand that you have weaknesses and to be able to think about how to attack them and improve them and make lifelong friendships. I mean, the people that I've worked with over the last 20 years, most of them are still friends. I hear from them all the time. (laughs) We have communities online. We do all sorts of activities. We have a a graduate workshop that meets for one week. I was going to say, you have a very active alumni program. You see alumni is coming back on the Odyssey workshop pages all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's wonderful. I mean, it's a group of of wonderful people who, who share the same interests and passions and want to help each other improve. It's just a great community. What's on the anyway, roster for the for the classes that are in the summer session? Can you can you give people a sneak peek of of the content they can expect to immerse themselves in uh, <laughs> in June and July? Sure, we have a, a really advanced curriculum that covers all the elements of fiction writing. I'm the primary instructor, so you would learn from me all sorts of topics like showing versus telling, description, setting, world building, plot, three-act structure, one-act structure, characterization, internal conflict, external conflict, style, voice, 
Um, let's see, what am I forgetting? Point of view. As <laughs> soon as you start view. listing, then it's like, oh crap, I got to get everything. Otherwise, somebody's going to be offended. <laughs> That's right. And of course, how to survive in the publishing world today oh, in the God. crazy changing climate that is out there. Wow. Um, so, and it's not just kind of, you know, studying well, like this is first person point of view and this is third person point of view, but really getting into what type of story are you trying to tell? How are you trying to move the reader? What sort of emotions and ideas are you trying to convey? And so then what, what point of view would be best for that kind of story? What character would be best? So it really it? is a, a tailored, customized focus that takes these broad concepts of writing and applies it very specifically to each writer's strengths and weaknesses. It's the combination of things that is so powerful. The hearing about the principles and discussing these principles in class every day, while simultaneously you are working on a story where you're applying those principles and you are critiquing somebody else's story to see where did they use those well and where did they um, not use them so well. Uh, so that your mind is making all sort of connections between these different ideas. It's not that the ideas we discuss are so mind-blowingly different from what you might get in a writing book, although some of them are. Sure. But it's more about making connections between these things because lots of writers read books on writing and then they sit down to write and there's really no connection in their minds <laughs> between what they read in the book and what they're typing out into their story. The, the brain has not made those connections. And so sure. doing all these things at once really helps to incorporate that knowledge, get it into your writing process, change the way that you think about story and that you create story. Outstanding. Well, and, and as you were speaking, Gene, I could hear, I have ears in the potosphere. I could hear people getting converted and saying, oh my God, <laughs> yes, I must attend this fabulous transformative event. Where can they go online to see what's coming up for the summer session and to get registered? Yes. So you can go to odysseyworkshop.org. That's our website. And you'll find there information about the summer's workshop, our guest lecturers. Uh, Dave mentioned that Mary Robinette Koal will be our writer in residence. Yes. But we've got five other terrific um, guest lecturers coming, including New York Times bestseller Megan Spooner, who's actually a graduate of Odyssey, uh, <laughs> Nora Jemison, who was just nominated for a Nebula Award wow. uh, days ago, uh, and Scott Andrews, who's an award-winning editor and publisher of the magazine Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Yes. So it's an awesome lineup. Each of these guests brings a lot of wonderful knowledge, their own techniques and approaches to add to what, what you learn in the class. Uh, yeah, so people have to apply by April 8th, and there's lots of information there. And people can always contact me to find out more. We also have on our website podcasts, which are excerpts from guest lectures from previous years. Uh, so if people want a taste of what it's like to be at Odyssey, they can listen to those and also learn a lot. That's spectacular. And that's a new addition, isn't it? To the, to, the, to the roster of stuffs up at the Odyssey Workshop website. That's very cool. People love them and say they, they, it's like, you know, getting a whole class. Yeah. 
that's that's outstanding. Well, friends, make that scene. Check that out. Uh, uh, but for now, I'm going to go ahead and start us up the clock. Let, let's dive in to our 20 minutes with Gene Cavello. So I'm just going to set the clock here so that, as we all know, we can ignore it. But it's it's good to have goals. So, <laughs> Gene, um, real quick, I, I, just a quick question. How many words is Fatal Spiral at right now? <laughs> Um, Yes. So, well, I'm happy to report that as of like four days ago, I finished the latest revision of the novel. So that's wonderful. (laughs) Yes. All the way down to 260,000 words. (laughs) So it's practically a short story. Well, in in the Gene Covello's measurement system, yeah, absolutely. Or maybe a novella (laughs) at the most. That's awesome. And you exactly. you continue to work on it. And, and that is inspiring. It truly, truly is. My, my question actually stems from something that I saw on your website. Um, you have up there a couple of appeals for help, which I found fascinating. Uh, uh, your main character in, in Fatal Spiral is is bipolar. You had mentioned during your last 20 minutes with your, your delight in, in broken characters and exploring the, the nuances of those flaws in the context of the story. Um, and, and also, you're dealing with sciences that, as an astrophysicist, you may not be in as up on, like genetics and embryology and obstetrics and so on. And you put out a call for help for people to contact you if they have information or experiences in any of those things. And that, I think, first of all, shows a great deal of of, uh, presence and thought and commitment to your story to actually reach out and find those experiences. I was curious, writers can do that. Uh, Writers, I think, must do that, whether they use Wikipedia or, or actual other individuals. How do you, as a writer, engage with those external sources and assess them in terms of value to incorporate into your story. How does that, that, it's almost like a collaboration, isn't it? How does that collaboration with these individuals, uh, uh, how do you process that and incorporate that to make your story better? Uh, Well, in several different ways. Uh, They are so helpful, and I have to first say just to urge writers to always do research and try to find out as much as you can. Uh, no matter what you're writing, there's usually somebody out there or some place or something that can give you knowledge about this subject to make your settings more real, to make your characters more real, to make your science more real or your magic more real, whatever it is. I used I was very hesitant to do that back, you know, years ago, like when I was in college and stuff, I would be embarrassed or I would think they would laugh at me. But really, experts in fields, I've, I've approached experts in so many fields, not only the sciences and biology and genetics, but also um, things like manhole covers. I talked <laughs> to the woman who's an expert in manhole covers. The thing is to first inform yourself enough so that the expert understands you've done as much research as you can on your own, and you really just have some questions that only another human being can answer. So, you know, I had read the whole woman's manhole cover book, which was fascinating. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Uh, there's a there's a woman's manhole cover book? Well, there's a, a book 
non-manhole covers, sorry, by a woman. I perhaps didn't say that correct. A woman's manhole the, cover. The gender specificity of manhole covers. That might just be sending people down the wrong visual image. <laughs> anyway, so then I could ask her questions. And the same with these scientists. So with the science people, usually, I mean, sometimes I interview them and ask them particular questions. Often I do it by email. Uh, so if I have a question, you know, like describe, I'm, I'm in this scene, this character has these things in the room and she needs to make a weapon. How is she going to make it? Or, you know, she's just been wounded in this way. What's going to happen to her? How does she need to treat it? Or is she going to be dying too quickly for me? <laughs> uh, so there's some of that. Uh, with the people who have bipolar disorder, it's been really interesting. I send them a questionnaire when they contact me. Um, trying to find out more about the particular type of bipolar disorder that they have, because there's a number of different types, and um, some will be similar to my character and some wouldn't be. And then to ask them questions about how they experience different things, what sort of urges they get when they have a mania, uh, which is one, one of the poles of bipolar. Mm-hmm. Then a couple of them who live close enough to me, I've met with and interviewed and I recorded the session so that I could hear how they talk um, and, and remember what they said, which has been really valuable. And now that I'm at this point where I, I've gotten through this revision and I think it's sort of readable, uh, <laughs> I want to have some, some of the people on, who have contacted me read some parts and say, okay, does this seem a believable chapter of somebody in depression? Excellent. This seem a believable chapter of someone in mania, uh, because the the character goes through the whole thing from depression to mania over the course of the book. Uh, yeah, and it, you know, I think it's critical to make it believable and to ha- be able to have somebody who has this disorder read the book and not be going the whole time. Oh, this is ridiculous. This is yet another phony. Right. You know, Hollywood kind of depiction of a mental disorder rather than something that's realistic. Yeah. It's it's an auth- it adds authenticity and and thus connectability to your story. That's awesome. So so basically, what you did is you you did your own research, reading the books, reading the articles, getting up to speed on the topics that you were you were uh, intrigued by or, or needed for your book, and then came to these these what what are they called primary sources? I guess is what you would call them. Uh, uh, with with specific questions in mind, did the did the did the conversations take you in directions you didn't anticipate? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, sometimes I think I know the answer, and I just want to confirm it. And sometimes I'm right, and sometimes I'm not right. <laughs> and then many times they just volunteer details that are incredible that you know I want to incorporate in some way into the book. That's one thing that. Um, primary sources and experts can really help you with is providing these details that you can't imagine and that you can't find in a book. Writers, we tend to feel like we have pretty good imaginations, but really the truth is often way stranger and more interesting than we can imagine. Absolutely. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Gene Cavellos after this brief promotional break. The Darkness, a fitting name for the rot at the heart of the Nanton, a blight that could ruin us all. It's said that Salisa had a plan, one that would reshape the future of the Nanton Kingdom. What I didn't know 
was that I was to be a key part of it. What none of us know is what it will cost. Into the Nanton, the world's first real-time fantasy blog, is about to enter its climactic third season at IntoTheNanton.com. Read or listen to it for free. Then back us on Kickstarter today. You have until April to keep the darkness at bay. Let's get back to the conversation with Gene Cavellos. One of the things I was wondering is, is there any particular character or personality type that you've struggled with writing? And how did you get past that? Other than your current protagonist. Uh, other than the, the current one. I think I have the biggest trouble, oddly enough, writing my antagonist which people find hard to believe because I, I really enjoy writing scenes where people get killed and tormented <laughs> and broken. Sure, conflict <laughs> is, is fun. Conflict is what we're in here for. <laughs> yeah, um, but I guess for me, I want the antagonist to be a believable human being, not a mustache-twirling villain. And so often I will try to start building the antagonist with a quality in myself. For example, the antagonist in this book that I'm currently working on that's really long, <laughs> uh, the antagonist is basically jealous of the talents of, he's a geneticist and he's jealous of the talents of this other geneticist who's bipolar and a genius. And he wishes he were as smart as she was. And I remember in college, I was struggling through some physics class, I think, and there was a girl down the hall from me who had, was a couple years ahead, and she had taken this physics class already. And once I discovered that, and that she could easily tell me how to solve the problem, you know, like of the homework, just like pointing me in the right direction, you know, use this equation or whatever, that it became very hard for me to resist the temptation to go and ask her rather than sitting there for an hour and banging my head against the desk before <laughs> I would come to the right solution. She was your own personal Google on this particular topic. Yes, it's before Google existed. <laughs> so that was sort of the core I started this antagonist with was this desire to just be able to go suck this other person's brain out um, you know, the frustration of why do I have to sit here and struggle when this other person could so easily help me, even though she doesn't want to. But getting from that into somebody who's a real threat, who's going to do things like, you know, kill other characters and take drastic action and be a real threat in the novel, took me a long time to get it from that core of reality that I could relate to, to being pushed into doing something more radical. So basically making the antagonist be in service to your story in an authentic way. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. How did you overcome that? Uh, through a lot of head pounding on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> a tried and true technique for all writers, I think. <laughs> uh, I actually had the character go through some really, really frustrating experiences that drove him to make the decision that he wanted to be remarkable and the only way he could be remarkable without having 
this level of intelligence that he wanted was to get her to get this other scientist that he, he wanted and that he would do whatever it took. So I just had to push him. Uh, and I think it works well uh, that you can see him gradually getting more and more frustrated and desperate and determined. Uh, but time will tell. Okay. Yeah, I think that sounds really good. Thanks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's, and, and it is, I mean, every story I think is a unique process, a unique exploration along those lines. Because unless you're doing, you know, cookie cutter uh, fiction where your characters follow this template, every circumstance, every story arc, every narrative is going to have subtle or, or overt, very, very overt differences and distinctions. And the, the intent of the antagonist is just as vital to driving that, that story, that narrative forward, as the intent and objectives of the protagonist. And if they don't intersect, if they don't clash in a dramatic way, then you really don't have a story, right? Absolutely. Uh, there's so many stories with passive protagonists. So I kind of had the opposite problem of the passive antagonist. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I, I feel like a little bit too often in stories, the story starts and, you know, the antagonist has already got his plans in motion. And, you know, the, the very beginning of it is the protagonist being thrust into this. But really with, with you starting with the antagonist possibly being a little more relatable. I think everyone has felt that jealousy of someone else <laughs> when they see someone else and they're like, wow, this person is just so good. Why can't I do that? Yes. And, you know, so the way the way you're starting it, where the antagonist is going to begin the story, at, you know, as a re very relatable and, you know, really reflecting those same emotions that other people feel. And, and then you start, you know, you start seeing the descent as the, they become more and more desperate. Well, and that really is kind of the distinction between a protagonist and an antagonist. Both characters mm -hmm. move forward in their arc and each one makes choices. And I guess, and Gene, back me up on this because I'm riffing right now. I have no idea if this is actual, <laughs> tr actually true or not. But the distinction between the two, one of the distinctions between the two is that the choices that the antagonists make lead them down a path that is that is detrimental, that is destructive uh, uh, and serves as like the dark mirror of the same choices that the protagonist is making. Or, or am I am I over mechanizing that? Uh, no, I think it certainly it can work that way. I, it doesn't always work that True. way, but it, it can. And I think I think it's very powerful when you see, or I hope it's very powerful when you see <laughs> that an antagonist could have made a different decision, that he didn't necessarily have to do what he decided to do. He could have taken another path. He could have just lived with the frustration or gone into another field. Right, <laughs> right. Retired or something. <laughs> but they don't. And 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 I guess that's kind of the cool thing about that why we love antagonists because we get to see the consequences of those crossroads and the choices that they make. And and that's that's kind of the edifying aspect of fiction. Uh, and all the more reason then to have to struggle as you have to create an authentic antagonist so that those consequences are relevant and important. Yes. 
I think when you have the antagonist who's just evil, he's just the bad guy, he wants to take over the world or whatever, that readers read that kind of story on a different level. Yes, yes. That certainly they can enjoy a lot, but it's maybe not reaching them as deeply and emotionally as some other kinds of stories. Excellent point. Yes. And and th- there's room for all the stories, but if, if yes. the author is looking for that deeper connection, then these topics that we're addressing of authenticity and choice uh, uh, need to be addressed. Excellent. Excellent. Gene, there's been a topic that has been uh, uh, sticking in my mind of late, uh, uh, which is how to start a story. Uh, you know, the first paragraph, the first chapter, the, the strategies and, and priorities and things that an author can do uh, to ensure that that first sentence, first paragraph, first scene does the job. And I was interested to see that in last year's winter workshops for, for Odyssey, there was a, a, a session on effective endings in speculative fiction. And I'm, I'm going to exploit the, the, the host's privilege of getting a sneak preview of a past event that I sadly was unable to attend. Can you summarize for us some of the, uh, the high points and features of what an effective ending is in speculative fiction? Uh, you know, endings are often where stories fall apart. Yeah, Exactly. I think a lot of writers, once you know the basics about openings, it's not that hard to write a a good opening, or at least a decent opening. Uh, If it's a short story, it may not be so hard to get through the middle, although novels kill writers in the middle. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. But the ending is really the test of whether the writer has known what he's doing all along or not, whether he's had a plan, whether or gotten the plan in revision, (laughs) which is fine, you know, maybe no plan in the draft, but figured out the plan in the revision of what the story is about, what effect is the author striving for? I think lots of times writers don't know what effect they're striving for. They just say, oh, it would be cool to write a story about, you know, rabbits on the run and uh, (laughs) they chew people's ankles. Uh, but like, what is the story trying to say? What, what is, how do you want to leave the reader feeling at the end? And what sort of themes do you want to convey? So the ending needs to hopefully resolve the conflict, right? We have a climax and a resolution. So it needs to be something that feels both surprising and inevitable so that the whole plot has been leading up to this point and we didn't see it coming. So we're surprised. But once it happens, we realize, ah, of course, that's what had to happen. Right. It couldn't have ended any other way. Yes. And oh, why didn't I see it? But I didn't. And wow. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, I think in part uh, what we need to achieve with the ending Sure. Which means all of these plot elements need to be from the first sentence to the last, all working together. Uh, we also want a, a resolution or some sort of sense of closure of the character arc for the protagonist. So if the character's been struggling with something, we probably want some sort of resolution. Um, maybe they make a decision at the climax and they change. Uh, 
perhaps for the better, perhaps for the worse. Maybe the character arc has been more about growth, so they've been struggling to gain skills or to be able to have confidence in themselves, and so then at the end they do or they fail. Or maybe it's about negative growth. I enjoy those kind of stories where a person starts out all wonderful and confident and happy, and then they maybe (laughs) become a worse and worse person uh, until the end they're broken and whatever. They have no confidence. Hello, Grimdark. They become alcoholics, whatever. (laughs) So we have some sort of sense of resolution, like the events have mattered to the character and they've had an impact and that it, it makes sense with the character. It ties together from the beginning to the end. And the challenge, I think, becomes even more profound if you're writing, you know, if you're setting out to write like a trilogy, for example. Yeah. Uh, Because the ending has to serve double duty. It needs to create a satisfying conclusion and have the reader feel like they've read a book that's done, but also simultaneously it needs to raise the stakes and the questions so that it compels them and and jettisons the reader into anticipation for the next book. Uh, That I would imagine is, is even, even more of a challenge for a writer. Absolutely. Because you need, as you said, you need to have resolution. I feel like in a trilogy, you need to have resolution at the end of each book. You need to have some plot arc that was launched in that book and that is resolved in that book. No cliffhangers. No cliffhangers. <laughs> <laughs> but then you also need to have a, a plot arc or a plot thread that's launched in that book that is not resolved. Uh, it shouldn't be the major one that we've been worried about, but it should be something that we can feel suspense and interest in at the end to keep going to tie these books together. Uh, for example, you can launch a thread in book one that won't be resolved until the end of book two. So we tie those together and you can launch a thread in book one that won't be resolved until the end of book three. So then all three are tied together and you can launch a thread in book two that doesn't get resolved (laughs) until book three and so on. So they're all tied together. Um, but we get a satisfying reading experience with each book. It really is a tapestry, isn't it? That's a good metaphor for writing, is, is weaving those threads. And, uh, I, and I, I would imagine the challenge then is, is to make those threads seamless. Because a, a veteran writer, I'm sure you do this, and Nick, I'm sure you do as well, when reading some novels, you can identify, ah, this is the large arc we aren't going to see this resolved until book three. Ah, here's the immediate arc. Yes, I, ex- I expect this to be wrapped up at book one. The trick for the writer then is to, is to blend those threads so that the reader's experience of the narrative is, is seamless and, and it progresses organically. Yes. Hopefully the reader would not be aware of any of these things, would just be <laughs> fascinated and breathlessly turning the pages and be interested in all of the threads. Uh, I think trouble comes when some of the threads are more interesting to the reader than others, Ah, you know, so then you have certain scenes or uh, books that are not as, as interesting to the reader as others. Um, Or if they don't feel like they do tie together as a whole, I'm big into unity. I think unity is one of the most important qualities of a story or novel or trilogy. Um, So that, all of the elements need to be working together to achieve 
the ultimate goal. Whether the author wants to think of that ultimate goal as a theme that they're conveying, and so the character, the plot, the setting, everything has to work toward the theme, or if they want to think of it as an emotional impact of some kind, and all of these elements are going to contribute to that emotional impact, it's really important to, to have that feeling of unity, to not have your elements warring against each other. Yes, agreed. And and you've given us some wonderful tools that we can use then to to achieve that unity through the theme, through the through the character uh, 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 progressions through the narrative. That's that's valuable, valuable information, guys. I, I hate to say it, but the, the the clock has has taken up a pitchfork and torch, and and all these little <laughs> other digital timers are rallying behind, and they have pitchforks and torches, and they're shouting something at me, but it's in clock, so I don't know what they're saying. But I can only assume <laughs> it's it's an ugly, ugly thing. I I, I hope. I'll be around for the next recording, but I think this just means we're out of time, which inevitably happens and, and is, a, is a sadness for me. Because, Gene, this has been awesome, as always. Uh, uh, thank you so much for sharing such wonderful insights, uh, uh, both about the workshop and about the craft. Uh, we really appreciate it, ma'am. I will just cling to the froth until it dissolves away. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, and hopefully the tide will come in again and there'll be more froth. Because it, it is a cyclic nature. It really, it really is. <laughs> well, Nick, there was some gold in there. There was some writerly goodness strewn before us and our listeners. Uh, uh, of, of all of those topics that we just went over, what's sticking out in your mind? What are you going to hold on to and, and tuck into your into your writerly pockets honestly there were there were quite a few things um yeah, i yeah. i really liked her approach to you know antagonists and yep. um it, it, you know especially you know where she was talking about developing the antagonist and in, fa- in fatal spiral um and how you really see not just the progression of the protagonist or you know any of the supporting characters but you really see the progression with the antagonist as well yeah. Um, I, you know, I, th- I think that's something that is oftentimes forgotten in, uh, in stories. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, whether it be, uh, television or novels or whatever else. And then another thing was, uh, about, you know, tying a trilogy together and how, you know, you have all the little smaller plot arcs. And then as you bring the first book to a close, seeding the story for the next one right. to lead up to it and still making certain that it's a satisfying ending. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've actually, I've been watching the, the, the Netflix series cooked recently. So, so my head is full of cooking metaphors and <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me how, you know, what the things that respond that you responded to Nick are, are very much the ingredients, those core components, these, these strategies that we have as writers are, are mm-hmm. very identifiable and quantifiable. And it's like, it's this. It's I need to put a thread for the third book in the first book. That I can, yes, I can say that. But then in the actual cooking of, of the book, those very tangible, very identifiable and approachable concepts break down and become this very organic, squishy uh, uh, biology of story that... <laughs> 
really becomes a struggle for so many of us. Uh, it becomes uh, a froth. It becomes a froth, exactly, which is why that word uh, is, is really the word for the roundtable. Those are excellent points, Nick. I agree. For me, it really was the discussion of, first, of primary sources. Um, one of the things that I value so highly uh, in, in my books is that very delicate balance between authenticity and info dumpage. <laughs> and, and, you know, I know all of these things about all of these things and I'm going to tell you in three paragraphs of description about, you know, how this thing works because I did my research. And by reaching out to primary sources, uh, uh, you take that, those facts, that information that you get from your initial research on online or in a book or whatever, and you ground it in a human being. And mm-hmm. you, you affirm or, or as Gene found out, uh, uh, revise your conclusions based on that interaction. And that process of, of, of reaching out to primary sources and engaging with them human to human is very much the kind of relationship we want our readers to have with our books. And that process is fascinating to me. And, and I found that, that aspect of our discussion to be something that I'm, I'm going to tuck away and, and incorporate in, in future uh, uh, writerly endeavors. Very cool. Very cool. So, friends, that was fabulous. You've got, you've got stuffs in your brains now. Your heart is aflame. Your fingers are itching to hit the keyboard. I can hear you. Uh, uh, and by all means, do that. Indulge those, those impulses. Uh, but here's the thing. If you come back in seven days, we're going to bring Gene back. We're going to bring Nick back. And we're going to add to the mix a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer who's going to set the table for a brainstorming feast, the likes of which you have never seen before. So do come back for that. It's going to be fabulous. And I know it's seven days. Seven days from now is a long damn time. Nick, what can our listeners do between now and seven days from now to make that time just whiz by? Well, I think they should experience life and go write. There you go. Yes, absolutely. Because writing is life. Writing is a mirror of our own lives. So so getting out of the house, and this is advice that I could certainly use right now, getting out of the house, unplug from the computer, feast on the glory that is the life outside your, your apartment or home, and then come back and write. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the holy crap. I didn't see that coming. Look for the awesomeness in the world. And I promise you, friends, if you look for it, you will find it. We'll see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, 
join in on the conversation, or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.